1: You are now entering Odyssey Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey Dare to Wonder.
0: And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Hagland and Phil Lernis.
2: Welcome once again to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, everybody. This is season two, episode 111. Coming at you from Los Angeles, I am Phil Lernis. Coming at us from Detroit, Michigan, outside there. Detroit adjacent, <laughs> Birmingham, Michigan, don't you know? It's the Motor City adjacent, Madman. TV's Dean Haglund. Dean, I don't know if we say happy Martin Luther King Day or. What? But are you enjoying your holiday?
3: Well, no, I didn't. Real, uh, well, uh, oh, you just started to dig yourself a hole. You didn't realize what? Well, I knew it was Martin Luther King Day, but I didn't know people got days off for that. I thought that was just something we observed while working. Wow. Your white supremacy is showing. <laughs> no, it's not. It's I am freelance, so every day
2: is a work day. <laughs> and the lord loves a working man <laughs> well you know we were
3: uh cooking last night was it last night oh no, no saturday night
2: that traditional s- that traditional pre-martin luther king day uh cookout
3: no haunted house it was a haunted house uh, live investigation scared and alone are we done talking about martin luther king
2: <laughs> no let's talk more about martin luther king i'm just telling you i work every day <laughs> dean we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope do you know who said that martin luther king well no me just now but those were originally <laughs> his words oh my goodness there's no getting out of this one let's just start the show I uh, heard from several of our most loyal listeners about last week's episode 110, which everybody can find, of course, wherever good podcasts can be found. But uh, especially, might we invite you to chillpackhollywood.com, where you can find so many of the classics from our 652 episode season one, as well <laughs> as all. 110 now 111 episodes of season two uh john lawler sent me a text that simply said king of the single entendre (laughs) yep that's you all right so perhaps a new nickname it's been a while i mean it's been many years since i was ojo Cinco. All right. Oh, I forgot about Ojo Cinco. Meanwhile, my own wife is quite concerned about you me tooing me after much of my uh, suggestive descriptions thrown your way uh, on last oh. week's show. Yeah, she's worried that you might me to me. <laughs> and I had to ex- wow. I had to explain to her that uh, it's only harassment if it's unwanted. Wait a sec.
3: Was I calling upon to be harassed? Don't
2: remember that. It's we're off to a great start because we We we've been we've been (laughs) we've been tongue in cheek about Martin Luther King Day and not taking me too seriously. (laughs) So uh, since this is our last show, (laughs) fantastic! You just buried it. Uh, Way to go! Finally, our uh, our friend Greg Vincent wrote. I heard something along these lines in episode one ten this afternoon. Phil, hey, Dean, so Joan Didion got her job at Vogue by winning an essay contest. Dean, wow. Phil, that's how you got into art school, right? (laughs) Dean, nah, it wasn't an essay. Phil, oh, yeah? What was it? (laughs) Dean, oh, I made a poster. (laughs) Phil, really? A poster? Dean, yeah a fun poster phil is that true dean no this is the stuff i can get nowhere else other than my chill pack hollywood hour oh my gosh uh
3: you know had we thought this through or maybe rehearsed or talked about what we're going to talk about Maybe the inane banter would not be so inane,
2: particularly when it is scripted out in front of us. <laughs> ay. <aye, aye. laughs> uh We we certainly didn't avoid that pitfall this week. No, we did not. Oh, hey, a fun poster. That's what I'm gonna do. All right, we're gonna hint at something, but uh, apparently we're gonna be acting in a movie together in Ohio. What? This is a hint. It sounds like you just gave away the whole bag of cash. Exactly. The whole bag. I mean, I haven't told you what the name of the movie is. I didn't mention (laughs) that it was Dead Slate, that it's a horror film set on uh, the set of a movie. It's uh, it's about a whole lot of things go wrong on the set of a movie. Uh, Oh, yeah. People disappearing, maybe being killed, and uh, a couple of guys... uh, take it upon themselves to investigate it. A couple of outsiders, oh. a couple of uh, your friends in podcasting. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So we investigate. I am hoping for your grisly death. That's all I'm saying <laughs> on camera. Wow. <laughs> on camera. On camera. Yeah, it's no good if it's off camera. If I'm just somebody oh, no. that just j- just disappears and we hear about it later, that is not satisfying enough. <laughs> no. No, I need a full uh, uh squib. That's good to know. That's good to know that my visceral on-screen death is giving the people what they want. I I kind of do like that. You want to make you don't you want to have an impact on people. You don't want to be the sort of person that they go, "Hey, everybody, you hear the news? Phil's dead." And then it's kind of <laughs> like a shrug and then everybody goes back to craft services. <laughs>
3: Well, let's see. I'm I'm not suggesting I'm not telling the uh, the directors or the producers how to make a movie. But uh, if they're not renting a chunk blower right now <laughs> to strap on the back of your head for a scene, uh,
2: I'm going to have to sit down for a rewrite myself. Chunk blower was one of the nicknames we tested out before <laughs> Osho Cinco. It's an actual name of a prosthetic device <laughs> that goes on the back of your head that fills with
3: stuff. And it's a compressed air thing to make it look like the back of your skull explodes. It's as you've seen it in many movies. In fact, there was a movie called Chunk Blower that I think used it
2: on pretty much every victim in the movie. So, well, talking about movies, and I guess we should just button that by saying we we don't know exactly when shooting will start. We we believe you know late second, certainly second half of twenty twenty two. Anyway, so sure. we'll we'll keep you all uh, apprised. Uh, But speaking of movies, what an exciting time this is. All the award nominations and and everything are coming out. And uh, I wanted to to touch base on a a couple of different films with you. One is a film of which I know you are quite the fan. And the other is uh, a film that I had circled way back last summer as oh. potentially being one of the kind of movies that might get me to the theater. And it, okay. it didn't. I don't even remember when it came out. Uh, it was released by A24, uh, a company you know I admire. And it was a, a film called Zola, which was based on a long tweet thread by a Detroit stripper. Uh, oh, yeah. Or, or pole dancer. I don't know whether that equates to stripper necessarily uh right. but a dancer and uh sure. how she had been roped into potential prostitution in Florida by a friend of hers uh oh, yeah. m- much against her, her her will and her wishes and right. uh it is a film directed with uh, great enthusiasm great style great innovation has some uh, really delightful performances Uh, Nicholas Braun, who plays Cousin Greg on the show Succession, which I've talked about a lot these last few weeks, he gives a a fantastic supporting performance. Um, It's a really well done piece of work that I ultimately gave up on about uh, two-thirds of the way through and will never finish. Why? What? It comes back to this issue that we discussed so much when we were making The Lady Killers and I realized that it's very much a part of who I am. Ah. That if you are making a film that wishes to expose and bring down in some way a culture of exploitation, your film ought not for me, anyway, be in and of itself exploitation. Right. But as we said, how
3: do you how do you parody or mock or put shine a light on
2: exploitation without showing exploitation? And again, I'm saying for me, right? right. I made a film in The Lady Killers that was authentic to me, and there were people that uh, have seen it that uh, don't like it because it's not exploitative. It's not exploitative um, it's not and, enough. Yeah. I mean, there's some people uh, who are big fans of the script that were really not fans of the direction because they saw... A different film there's also Ah. I would point out people who are not really fans some of these are movie reviewers uh, not really (laughs) fans of the script but were fans of the direction oh Uh, so you know I can't win for losing as the as the phrase goes Uh, and I guess I'm turning this into a, a, a thing about our film the lady killers but honestly the older I get the harder it is to review a film without acknowledging that I'm just talking about myself and I'm just (laughs) revealing myself. And so this is a movie that might work for some people and it might open some people's eyes. My concern is, my visceral reaction to it is, you are trying to have your cake and eat it too. And that undermines your thematic uh, intent.
3: Right, so you're saying it's like showing the life of a pole dancer in Florida as glamorous, exotic, and yet trying to say exploitive and it's harming everybody and so on and so forth.
2: I actually believe that in doing so, uh, you both ensure distribution and a release of the film, and you also automatically prevent uh, it making much of a, cultural imprint ah right right it's a real dichotomy in the age in which we live but to be able to get it out to the marketplace you might have needed to make the film you did but in so doing you prevented yourself from making any impact you might have wished with it
3: right and probably uh considering the cultural shift pivot we are in In five to ten years, it will not (laughs) have aged well, to say the least.
2: That's an interesting point. Uh, Do you think that it has to do with um, being authentic uh, to who you are at the time? Uh, Authentic, not to some idea of who you are, of who you want to be, but truly authentic as an artist, I mean, does this not uh, come back to 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 painting um, or
3: anything?
2: Any TV show? I mean, you know,
3: you look at Miami Vice now. What a terrible series that is! And yet, it was number one in the eighties. Except, in the, when I was that age, I said this is a terrible series, and nobody believed me. They said, "No, it's great." Are you kidding? Action. And oh, my gosh, I bring I up
2: painting and you bring up Miami Vice. This is not the first time recently you've thrown Miami Vice under the, the bus. And oh, I guess uh, I just saw it recently. I just am worried. Speaking of me, too, that we are going to find out that Miami Vice sexually assaulted you. <laughs> So I have been watching, and this wasn't the film I was going to talk about that I know you're a fan of, but I've also been watching and almost uh, have completed, finally, The Last Duel. Uh, Ah. And, uh, you know, this was the Ridley Scott film. We analyzed why this uh, didn't do well at all, why it didn't even open and then tapered off to nothing from there, uh, despite getting almost universal excellent reviews. It's even made a lot of top ten lists. Uh, And no one wanted to see this. Ridley Scott on Mark Maron's WTF podcast just blamed blanket millennials. Millennials aren't interested in seeing anything of value. Period. Full stop. I mean, just the angry old guy. Hey, you millennials, get off my cinematic lawn. <laughs> Mr. Scott, they're already off your cinematic lawn. Clearly. Yeah. yeah. And we You're don't. Saying, Get back on my lawn. We don't, exactly. We don't feel <laughs> bad for Ridley Scott uh, for any reason. But um, also this year, he does have a, a, a film that did pretty well in the box office, all things considered, given global pandemics and whatnot. And that's uh, House of Gucci. It's the one film mm-hmm. that seems to have attracted. Uh, An older audience to come back to the theaters, shall we say, because it's only been young people who seem to be fully on board with the idea of going back to the cinemas to see movies. And it's funny because in Hollywood for many decades, uh, it has been decried that uh, everything is geared at 15 to 24 year olds. Right. Right. Now we're right back to that, at least for the big screen, because if only 15 to 24 year olds are brave enough to go to the theaters, who are they going to make movies for? (laughs) And and I salute them at that point. Honestly, if those are the only people who are going to go to the movies, well, then I guess movies should only be for young people. Uh, And you make your uh, stories for older people, more mature people directly for uh, the distribution methodology that, of which they will avail themselves. Right. Uh,
0: anyway. Yeah, right? Anyway. Okay.
2: I uh, I did see the Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Oh, you did. And uh, this is from Will Sharp, who's an actor. Uh, I knew he he co-wrote it and he directed it. He played a key supporting part in one of the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. Uh, episodes, the remake of the adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles. And so I bet that that's where that friendship was born. And that's how he gets Benedict Cumberbatch to star in this uh, in this movie. This is available on Prime. And uh, it's one of three, dare I say, uh, major accomplishments on the big screen for Benedict Cumberbatch this past year. Uh, My goodness. The lead in Louis Wayne, the lead in Power of the Dog, which is probably going to win Best Picture, and uh, let's not forget Spiderman No Way Home. He's Spiderman in the- No Way Home. Yeah, Doctor Strange. So oh. that's a pretty good... Just those right there, right? How about an actor yep. being in the biggest hit of the year and an actor being in the Best Picture winner of the year? Right. Uh, that's a-, this one. a pretty good year. And then you add this um, and... I'm with you. He might be doing some of his best work ever in this film, though I've got to tell you, in all those movies that I just mentioned, and I am a Benedict Cumberbatch fan, uh, I find him off-putting at the beginning of all these movies. (laughs) I have to spend some time getting used to the choices that he has made.
3: Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is a... uh, uh let's say effervescent. I'm not going to say abrasive. I'm not going to say he slaps you in the face with oddities, but it is uh, quite a uh, tickle to the nasal soft palate on some of his initial things that you think, is he goofing around? Is he overacting? Is he, what is, what, what is he doing setting this up? Once you're in though, you're like, Oh I yeah, this is a fully developed, three-dimensional
2: character just built with walls that you've never seen before, really. And and it's true of all three of those movies that we just discussed. It's true of Doctor mm-hmm. Strange and, and in the Marvel movies. Uh, it's right. true of his character in Power of the Dog. And that word effervescence is amazing because Power of the Dog, he is playing someone you would never describe as effervescent. Very right. sullen. And yet, you're right, the choices and how they are being enacted by the performer, it's effervescent. And yeah. it's like, okay, what has Benedict brought to show us this <laughs> week? It's almost a little bit of show and tell. And, yeah. uh, and you're right, it is three-dimensional. It is lived in. It is off-putting. And...
3: Yeah off-putting i don't know if you ever saw that um royal shakespeare where they transmit the live play to theaters around the world um they did uh, a two-person frankenstein that each night oh right uh, right uh the actors changed parts so it was kind of done in rep where one night he's the doctor and the next night he's the monster and uh in it, the monster learns to talk after fleeing from the doctor for a year and a half. Somehow develops the power of speech to come back and challenge the doctor why you made me. You know, that sort of thing. But uh, I saw that one where uh, where Kamarag was, was the monster. And just in terms of like, wow, just weird choices that you would think for a Frankenstein monster being almost childlike and just weird Choices. But once you saw the whole thing and you stayed with it all the way, it totally made sense. But some and I would give that, you know, to bravery because somebody there would be a director. I'm sure he's heard it from directors going, what are you doing? And then he has to explain. And then they go, oh, yeah, I see that. And
2: then let him run with it. Right. That show from the National Theater uh, was directed by Danny Boyle and uh, and and the other actor in that two-hander was johnny lee miller yeah right uh so two deal. two sherlock holmes in one right. frankenstein adaptation uh anyway <laughs> Uh, so let me ask you this. This is a movie uh, with a great heart, great whimsy, great pain. It it brings to life uh, the creative process, the connection between uh, g- grief and pain, between uh, uh, self-expression and connectivity with your fellow human beings. It's beautiful to look at the one three three aspect ratio uh you know that really lends itself to the canvas um the production design the casting the costumes uh everything this movie has everything uh why don't critics like it why did it get lukewarm at best reviews dean what's missing from this thing well
3: a he's an obscure artist so you you know his work if you love cats from the 18th century. Are you saying
2: that movie critics don't like cats? Is that the problem? (laughs) I'm willing to get on board with this theory. I'm I'm
3: saying they're all cat haters. Uh, He doesn't have the uh, gallery name recognition of, say, a Frida Kahlo or Vincent van Gogh or any of those biopics that come through. Plus, his story is sad, right? I mean, here he is uh, selling these prints all over the world. And he forgot to get a copyright on it. So here, you know, one, one of the most successful illustrators of the Victorian times going broke in front of his eyes as everything, as his popularity
2: swells. I mean, I mean, it, it is the biopic that we caution against in that it tells virtually the whole life, right? It does tell the whole life of him as artist. Uh, and we caution against that, usually, right? Take, take right. A, a, a sliver, take a story that's emblematic of the overarching story. So that's prob- that, that, that is a tough challenge. But I am wondering if it is structural in nature, the problem that, that critics have had with it. Is it because structurally, the narrative doesn't propel us forward? The way that uh, it it might have been better served to. And uh, are we just making allowances for it because we innately find it interesting? Wow. well, exactly. I mean, structurally, holy smokes your third act is he's broke, and
3: it's a real downer. you you're gonna have a little hill to climb there.
2: To get you to the end of the movie. I want to take just a moment to uh, remember a friend of mine, Sherman Golub, who died at age 86. Sherman mm. was uh, quite the academic, uh, quite the, uh, the, the brilliant man, the intellectual, lived the examined life. He was the, the, the father of, of my lifelong friend, uh, Ben Gollub one of my favorite stories about Sherman was when he was a professor of physics at Kent state university during the time of the Kent state riots. Whoa. And this tells you, uh, so much of what you need to know about Sherm that, uh, he went in that day early to tutor students of his that were struggling with the class. And so he gave up his hours to work extra time with these students. They got in there early They got out late. They had no idea at all what had taken place that day on that very campus. Uh, Sherm's wife, uh, very worried about (laughs) what was going on, what was happening. Of course, for those of you who don't know, uh, I think four students killed, right, by the National Guard uh, on Kent State State campus and uh, immortalized in song. This is Odyssey.
1: A song uh, written by Neil Young, it's something called Ohio.
2: My friend Ben was a was a a baby at that point, um, but he and his older brother uh, watched as the tanks rolled in, gleeful, because they had never actually seen a parade in person. Celebrity deaths. Rosalie Hawkins was a singer with the 1960s girl group The Dixie Cups, who had such hits as Chapel of Love and Ico Ico. Oh. She died on January January 11th at the Tampa General Hospital in Florida of complications from surgery at the age of 77. Uh, I'm not sure we've ever had that as cause of death, complications from surgery. Surgery, yeah, don't Uh, know. She founded the Dixie Cups along with her sister, Barbara Ann Hawkins, and their cousin, Joan Marie Johnson, in their hometown of New Orleans. They had been singing together since childhood, and they quickly became popular after getting a record deal and releasing their 64 debut single, Chapel of Love. My goodness, you're not messing around if that's your debut single. I know, right? Uh, They followed it after that topped the charts with the singles People Say, You Should Have Seen the Way He Looked at Me, and Little Bell. Their final hit single, Ico Ico, was their version of a traditional New Orleans song that their record producers recorded as they unknowingly sang it together while keeping the beat with drumsticks on ashtrays. What? How much does that make you want to go pull that song out? (laughs) I know. Wait a sec. How unknowingly, I mean, they're just hanging around the studio, tapping away on the ashtrays, well, jamming away. Well, and- you see the Get Back uh, docuseries on Disney Plus of the Beatles and how much of their work would be in studio just messing around with various songs that they all knew. Uh, like, right. a, like a basketball team. That's what I likened it to watching the Beatles was – We see the game. These people are in various ways warming up, doing drills, working out for many hours leading into that game. And that's true of a band when they're setting in to record. Uh,
3: Isn't that true?
2: It was fascinating, like at one point hearing, I think it was George Harrison, after they'd been working for many hours, uh, finally saying, "Okay, my fingers are loose. (laughs) And Isn't that fantastic? So, uh, so you can understand, like they're they're getting their groove on, they're mm-hmm. they're they're doing their vocal warm up exercises, and they just seg into this song that they all know, this "Ico Ico," and they break up shortly thereafter. And you wonder, did they break up because they were tired of the record label surreptitiously recording them and releasing <laughs> stuff when they didn't know that they were being recorded, right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, that would be funny if that was true. Anyway, Rosalie Hawkins uh, later became a model and wrote the memoir Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group The Dixie Cups. Oh. You know who also was really big at that time was Ronnie Spector and the 1960s girl group The Ronettes. Oh, right. Who took their name from her. her their hits included Be My Baby, and that boy that song holds up every bit as 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 well as it did when it was first released she died of cancer at the age of 78 on January 12th uh and she is truly someone for whom the word legend applies uh she was born Veronica Bennett she formed the vocal group the Ronettes with her sister Estelle Bennett and their cousin Nidra Tally they were a popular live act uh, in New York when they were signed by producer Phil Spector to his label label Philly's Records in 1963. Their first single was Be My Baby. It no. was released in August 63, reached number two on the charts. Her uh, powerful lead vocal and Phil Spector's Wall of Sound production, uh, which became highly influential thereafter, uh, leads to that song being... Uh, on many of the all-time best song lists. Uh, More hits followed, of course, including Baby I Love You and Walking in the Rain. They were known for their sexy onstage image. They were one of the most popular groups of the 60s. They became close friends with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The Stones opened for them on their UK tour. No way! And they opened for the Beatles on their US tour. <laughs> Fantastic uh, The group broke up in 1967 Though they would get together uh, From time to time for reunions uh, Ronnie Married Phil Spector in 1968 Taking his last name uh, They were divorced in 1974 In her memoir Be My Baby How I Survived Mascara Mini Skirts, and Madness She described <laughs> the abusive relationship She endured while married To Phil Spector I imagine. Yeah, which always made me think it was odd when people would be surprised. Really? Phil Spector would kill someone? <laughs> right. Um, Have you ever heard of his wife? I mean, honestly. Anyway, after the runettes, she continued her music career. She sang vocals alongside Eddie Money on his 1986 hit, Take Me Home Tonight. What a what a great song that is! I mean, that holds up, and it, it in no small part holds up because of her supporting vocals. Uh, she recorded with the likes of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. In two thousand six, she released the album Last of the Rock Stars, which uh, featured her with Keith Richards, with Patti Smith, and with the Rock on tours. Wow, we're not uh, leaving uh, the music genre. Dean, the musical world, because we've got to say goodbye to Calvin Simon, another founding member of the influential funk band Parliament Funkadelic. Wow. You lived for funk. I did. <laughs> you did. Remove the question mark. All <laughs> right. I did. Of course I did. Take two. I live for funk. <laughs> uh, he died January 6th at the age of 79. Uh, he was a member of Parliament Funkadelic from its earliest days as a 1950s doo-wop barbershop quintet, called The Parliaments. After a hiatus while he served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, he remained with the band as it morphed into one of the most distinctive funk bands of the 60s and 70s, dare I say of all time, with hits including Flashlight and Give Up the Funk. Uh, Along with other members, Simon left P-Funk in 1978, though he later performed with the P-Funk offshoots Funkadelic and Original P. Uh, Original P, by the way, uh, was (laughs) the first uh, nickname I think we tried out for me on this show. (laughs) That's right. But we spelt it like the vegetable. Uh, And then it became Chunk Blower. Uh, And then we settled on, (laughs) after a lot of focus groups, Ojo Cinco. And now... I don't know. I'm saying Chunk is coming back. Oh, uh, I don't know. King of the Single Entendre. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is you. Although it does sound... Chunk Blower does sound like my funk name, and my album would be King of the Single Entendre. <laughs> Chunk Blower. I guess I like I, Calvin Simon was a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the recipient of a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. All right. We move from the world of music to the small screen of classic golden age television. Dwayne Hickman, the actor who starred in the title role on the classic sitcom The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. Oh, he died at the age of 87 on January 9th from complications of Parkinson's disease. Uh, Dean, did you watch The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis? Uh, My sisters
3: did. They thought this was the coolest show ever. So by attrition, and they're older, and I couldn't change the channel, I did remember watching this as a kid.
2: So you're not saying that Love, Many Loves of Dobie Gillis is one that would offer uh, contemporary audiences entertainment?
3: I'm saying it would. I'm going to say Bob Denver, in his pre-Gilligan role as a beatnik with the really hip uh, beard that he had, uh, actually made me appreciate him more as Gilligan. Uh, there were times at Gilligan's Island, I thought, <laughs> as a kid, oh, come on, uh, what's this guy doing? This doesn't make any sense. Choices and all that sort of thing. But but when you watch Doby Gillis, you're like, oh, there's a lineage, a comedic lineage that uh, not is he bringing, but the series brings uh, to that time of uh, how sitcoms were done, what was considered funny how pacing and timing were back then a little different. And of course the introduction of the laugh track uh, started in and around that show in Uh, the sixties.
2: It is important probably to note that the show was uh, at least one of the first sitcoms. It was right at that time uh, when they were trying to focus on the lives of teens and, and counterculture because prior to those years, there wasn't really uh marketing towards teenagers, for products, for entertainment.
3: right. they were still adults. Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, so anyway, uh Hickman plays the title character, of course. He had already starred on uh, a sitcom called The Bob Cummings show. Uh, he co-starred as Chuck McDonald on that show. Um, so he was already uh, quite the well-known presence in the uh, on television and in sitcoms. He was in fact in his mid twenties when he's playing teenager uh, Dobie Gillis, um, <laughs> right? A tradition that, of course, would continue very much <laughs> to this state. day. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Jeff. Just- <laughs> he went on to appear in movies uh in some really big movies some you would expect uh like the how to stuff a wild bikini right like these beach right. party kind of movies ski party uh, but also cat baloo for crying oh. out loud oscar-winning film uh and yeah. later on his career a night at the roxbury with will ferrell and chris Kattan. Are you kidding? Uh, No, Uh, he had numerous TV appearances, as you would expect. uh, The Mod Squad, Murder She Wrote, uh, even the sitcom Clueless. He became a director. He directed episodes of such TV shows as Designing Women and Sister, Sister. And he worked in production uh, as a uh, executive on television. So quite the multifaceted career for this guy who started as uh, a sitcom star in some ways, it almost uh, foreshadows the career. I think Ron Howard might have
3: to a smaller degree, right? To a smaller degree. Yeah. But in terms of executive uh, producing, in terms of uh, directing,
2: uh, moving into directing directing and then moving into being an executive, Um, it, it, it's paving the way for that as an accepted career path. Wow. Um, Look at that. Another uh, fixture for many years on the small screen was actor, comedian, and director Bob Saget, who starred in both Full House and its Netflix revival Fuller House. Uh, And, of course, let's not forget the original host of America's Funniest Home Videos. Right. Right. He died January 9th at the Ritz-Carlton, Orlando at the age of 65. Died in sleep, so uh,
3: potentially it's either um, a heart attack, stroke, or aneurysm are normally uh, uh, sleep-derived causes of
2: death. And And, what what will our listeners win if they guess correctly, (laughs) Dean? We're not winning anything, to guess Bob said. Oh, we're not. We're not. Okay, no, that's... uh, that's wrong. You know it's who? Something. You know who would have suggested something like that? To do that, who? Chunk blower. <laughs> That's chunk blower show. So, so Bob Saget became America's dad in his first big television role, starring in the popular sitcom Full House, which debuted in 1987. That's right? funny that he became America's dad because uh, I remember. Right at that same time, right around 1987, we had an America's dad. Does anyone remember Bill Cosby? <laughs> no, no, I don't. And do not remember him. And I I bring that up for a reason. Because uh nobody's willing to admit that Bill Cosby was America's dad anymore, right? Uh right. because of certain monstrous behavior that pretty much everyone Except the most brain dead have have been willing to uh, realize uh, has always been true. Uh, always of, been true. of that man. Um, I knew it since '86. So uh, I would argue we knew it before that. We knew it since his uh, nightclub oh. uh, stand-up Spanish records, Life. where he joked about date rape. However, yeah. that mm-hmm. brings us back to Bob Saget because how oh. shocked were people to realize when they would go after his fame as a widowed dad whose brother-in-law and best friend help him raise his three daughters on Full House, how surprised would fans of that character and that show be To go to see their beloved, wholesome and corny Bob Saget with his squeaky clean dad jokes step out on stage to do stand up comedy. That was the filthiest, most inappropriate. How shocked uh, do you think those fans were? To uh, see that uh, Bob Saget, quite shocked. You know who wasn't shocked were those of us who were fans of his stand up prior to him being on Full House. Oh yeah, well his opening bet
3: would be him impersonating Pac Man, uh, walking on stage in a maze like formation, but instead of making the walk walk sound, he was using the F word, just going f f f f f f f, uh, fully (laughs) fully articulated at the top of his lungs. For like a good three minutes. That's the whole bit. And uh, boy, that certainly burst any person's expectation of having a clean cut show right then and there.
2: He reveled in dirty jokes and vulgar words that would never find their way onto his character's lips in uh, Full House, certainly. Uh, But again, he had been performing this for decades. Uh, He even did a two hour set the night before his death. That's the
3: amazing thing. A two-hour set, that's not easy uh, for anyone any age. So, And he, in his tweet, his final tweets, made
2: it sound like he was surprised how effortless it was. So He directed also the Norm MacDonald vehicle Dirty Work. Oh, uh, yeah. That movie with Artie Lang, and I think Chevy Chase is in it, too, if I remember correctly. Is that a good movie? No, it is not. Is it a funny movie? <laughs> It really kind of (laughs) is. It is kind of good and funny. (laughs) But everybody's doing their
3: own thing. Like Bob Saget, you know, gracious as he was, he supported so many comics that I know uh, had friends of mine open for him on the road. So yeah, I could see him directing and just allowing performers to do their thing. And uh, at perhaps as you see in that movie, this sacrifice of storytelling and or other
2: things. To pull a, a, a thread on this uh, comparison to Bill Cosby, um, I I bring it up not because I'm suggesting that Bob Saget's comedy uh, meant that he was letting us know what he was up to, right? Uh, mm-hmm. These These filthy jokes that they were revealing – the, the you know behavior that we should have been aware of that is going to come out. I'm not suggesting that. Uh, right. What I am suggesting is uh, that actors are not the characters they play. <laughs> and, and that's really his thing. I mean, he he always thought it was funny
3: that he was cast as the clean cut guy because his act from
2: day one, even before that was always raunchy and dirty. But. And you know? he, and that's the point. He consciously wanted us to know the difference between him and the character and honestly, between him and the character he was playing out on stage in stand up, that these are acts we're putting on and that exactly. And if there is a point to my comparison with Bill Cosby and if I were, oh, by the way, to bring up other Famous father figures on television, which I will not, though <laughs> I know of uh, just appalling behavior firsthand from some of these people. Um, the need to either separate yourself from or identify with your great success is such a dangerous pitfall. There is the famous uh, story about Humphrey Bogart that I love to share. Uh, People said Humphrey Bogart was the loveliest man you would ever meet until he started drinking, and then he started to believe he actually was Humphrey Bogart. (laughs) Interesting. Certainly we saw with Bill Cosby someone who wanted to believe the act. He wanted to believe the character that he had become for right. America. Bob Saget was somebody who uh for for better or worse never seemed to be full of crap. I know, right? There was
3: never a uh, pretension. I'd, like even on stage, there were there was never uh hey uh, everybody calm down, I'm a big movie star. He would he would I saw him duke it out with some hecklers uh good naturedly, but but he could tear into him if needed be. And he didn't uh, didn't shy away from that either. So, yeah, I I, uh, I always appreciate it. I actually like to stand up more than any of his acting work. Oh, of course. Of course.
2: Yeah. Uh, so finally, uh, one of the true icons and uh, talking about Bill Cosby, uh, you can't talk about this man without talking about the work that he did with Bill Cosby. And that was Sir Sidney Poitier. Yes, Uh, this is a man who not only was one of the greatest actors, but carried one of the largest, heaviest burdens of any performer. He carried the burden of being the black actor in show business for many years and knew that how he carried himself uh, not only in his work, but in his personal and public life mattered because it would affect the path that every performer of color thereafter would be walking.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, at a time when it was still, uh, you know, when he won an Oscar, and gave, uh, and it was awarded to him by um, Mel Brooks' wife, Anne Bancroft. Anne Bancroft, and gives her, she gives him a peck on the cheek, and that uh, gives a slew of death threats to Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks, and causes Max Brooks to then become so paranoid he writes how to survive a zombie attack,
2: and <laughs> all of that, all of that directly related from. Uh, Just a simple. Wow. You wonder wonder how much that serves to inspire in some way Blazing Saddles.
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. uh,
2: Anyway, he did become the first uh, black actor to win the Academy Award for for Best Actor for his performance in Lilies of the Field. Uh, Mr. Poitier died January 6th, age of 94. He was born in Miami, Florida, to uh, parents from the Bahamas, where he was raised. He came to the U.S. at 15, worked as a dishwasher before landing an audition with the American Negro Theater. His first big success was on Broadway in Strada. A wonderful mm-hmm. story about when he was a roommate with Harry Belafonte there in New York, and uh, they couldn't afford Broadway uh, tickets for them to each see the show. So they would buy one ticket and they would switch off uh, seeing the acts at intermissions. They would, they would come out. Um, would wait, wait outside on the sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah i um, mm-hmm. Anyway, a- after that uh, Broadway success, uh, it, it's, he soon uh, appeared in breakout movie roles in no way out and blackboard jungle. Uh, right. You know, Glenn Ford, always one of, I think, the most uh, underrated actors. I know you are a fan of Glenn Ford. Uh, Absolutely. Their scenes together are really fascinating to this day uh, in Blackboard Jungle. Um, th- th- is the film dated? Of course it is. But uh, more than just as a historic curio, uh, it it is worth watching, uh, especially because, as I say, those scenes with them really crackle. Right. Um, he, uh, he portrayed a rebellious high schooler in uh, that movie. His big breakthrough into adult leading roles was when he starred opposite Tony Curtis in The Defiant Ones. His oh, right. performance earned an Academy Award nomination. Uh, he uh, later stars in A Raisin in the Sun during its first run on Broadway in 1959 and then reprised his role for the big screen. In 1963, he wins the Oscar for Lilies of the Field. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 67, he stars in three hugely successful films in the same year, To Sir With Love. Right. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And uh, one of my all-time favorites, In the Heat of the Night.
3: Right. With uh, Steiger, right? Rob Steiger.
2: Um, yeah. You know, uh, g- Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, has a certain, uh, you know, earnest uh, charm. charm, but also cheese factor that I will acknowledge. But I'm sorry if you don't get moved by the speeches where Sidney Poitier tells his own father to get off his back and where Spencer Tracy uh, takes issue with the idea that that he doesn't love his wife uh, every bit as passionately as he did when they first fell in love. Uh, if you don't get moved by those two speeches there, there is no blood coursing through your body. <laughs> wow. you know. So you're seeing Poitier at the peak of his powers and you're seeing Spencer Tracy, maybe the greatest of all screen actors uh, in his swan song. Uh, why wouldn't you want to watch that? for crying out right. loud. Of course, Poitier, um shifts into directing. He does come back to acting uh, in the 80s, but really he's making his mark uh, throughout the 70s uh, by moving into directing. Uh, think about uh, the the film that he made with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, Stir Crazy, which oh, of was, was one of the biggest hits of that year and the highest grossing film by any African-American uh, director at that time. Um, he directed, in addition to that, Uptown Saturday Night. And as I said, he continued to act uh, in such movies as They Call Me, Mr. Tibbs, the sequel to In the Heat of the Night. And when he came back, uh, such movies as Sneakers. Uh, In the 1960s, he was also an icon of the civil rights movement, uh, joining the aforementioned Harry Belafonte when he traveled south for 1964's Freedom Summer. And uh, became involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was honored widely and often, as one would expect. Knighted in 1974, carrying the honor of Knight Commander of the British Empire. Uh, he got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild and one from the American Film Institute. Kennedy Center honors, the NAACP Image Award Hall of Fame, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Wow. I
3: saw him in Vancouver working on Shoot to Kill. And the surprising thing, uh, the amount of laughter. Holy smokes. The guy was funny in between. You think of all these serious roles of all this gravitas he had. And yet uh, before action and immediately after cut, laughs, joking around, uh, loose, light as a feather. All of those
2: things you wouldn't expect from him on set. But maybe that's what kept him young. And let's face it, he stayed young. I mean, Shoot to Kill was his comeback movie. And I remember thinking, wow, when he does In the Heat of the Night, he's 40. But he looks like he's in his 20s. In Shoot to Kill, he's 60, but he looks like he's 40. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, he stayed young. And And, probably through laughter. uh, This was what Poitiers said about being such a groundbreaking star. It's been an enormous responsibility, and I accepted it. And I lived in a way that showed how I respected that responsibility. I had to. In order for others to come behind me, there were certain things I had to do. And... I think this is a great place to end because it shows that he took his responsibility seriously while not taking himself seriously, as you just described, right? It's a pretty good recipe for living a purpose driven life.
0: Belated spoiler alert. Odyssey. Dare to wonder.